New clues in the search for a missing 22-year-old man who was last seen about a week and a half ago leaving the Bell and Hand Tavern in Boston. This as search teams were in the water near Nashua Street today looking for any sign of Zachary Marr. Two dive teams, Boston Police and State Police, spend much of the day in the murky waters of the Charles River, right at the locks. They were looking for the body of 22-year-old Zach Marr. He's been missing for 10 days now. We're just worried, sick, or heartbroken. Family and friends put up flyers shortly after Zach went missing. He'd been at this bar near Faneuil Hall with his cousins. It was early Saturday morning, the 13th, when he stepped out for a smoke without his jacket. This is the last video of Zach. Then he disappeared. I'm working 40 hours a week, and he's going to school full-time, taking five classes. Um, and, you know, the stress of our grandmother passing away. Then I just hope that he can come home. A new effort is underway to find a missing Boston man. 24-year-old Eric Munsell was last spotted near the Market Lounge on Broad Street three weeks ago. The BU grad who works for General Electric was out celebrating his birthday with friends that night. Last night, his father held a candlelight vigil along the waterfront near Long Wharf. He says now all they can do is pray. In recent years, an alarming number of young men, mostly in their early 20s, have been found dead in the waterways of cities primarily known as college towns, including Boston, Massachusetts, La Crosse, Wisconsin, Chicago, Illinois, Manchester, England, and dozens of others. In most cases, alcohol or drugs were suspected as the root cause. In others, suicide. And in still fewer, what police describe as a minuscule number, murder has been left open as a possibility. Boston has gained notoriety as a drinking town, usually found in the top few cities which are ranked for drunkenness, and has earned the undesired and grisly reputation for the larger-than-average number of young college males that have been found drowned in the rivers and waterfronts that surround the city. Are they suicides, drunken accidents, or the victims of serial killers, as some people are theorizing? Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, from our mystery series, is titled The Missing Men of Boston and details the recent epidemic of drownings in the Boston area and the news surrounding them. Thanks for joining us, and now, our story. The headline, becoming almost too commonplace in Boston, reads, Boston Police Divers Search for Missing Harvard Man. The family of a missing Central Massachusetts man hold on to hope despite video. And the article written by Globe staff writers Asted W. Herndon and Jan Ransom goes on to say that the missing Harvard's man name was Zachary Marr, who had gone missing just 10 days before when he was last seen leaving a bar in Boston at around 1 a.m. The family of Zachary Marr, a 22-year-old who went missing on February 13th of 2016, said they were holding out hope for his safe return, despite the emergence of video footage that police said appears to show Marr disappearing into the Charles River under the Zakem Bridge, about a mile from the bar. That video footage prompted a renewed search for Mars' body, and Boston and state police dive teams scoured the water near Charles River Dam. 
Marr, who was visiting Boston from the town of Harvard, was last seen outside the Bell in Hand Tavern near Fanul Hall around 1.50 a.m. on February 13th. The video shows a male headed toward the water and disappearing, said Boston Police Commissioner William Evans. We believe that is him. It is a sad case. The police had recently contacted the family about the grim footage, which shows Marr on a walkway, then walking on train tracks before he disappears into the water. The family was holding out hope that their son might still be found. On March 15th, a passerby spotted a body in the water by the Boston Museum of Science. The body was found in the vicinity of the previous searches. Since 2009, at one count, at least nine bodies, mostly of young men, have been found in the water in the Boston area. They generally involved drugs or alcohol, while some were accidental drownings or suicide, law enforcement officials said. Officials have grappled with how to prevent those incidents. When you see something like this happen, it's a tragedy, and you want to do everything to stop it, said former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. During his tenure, the department was unable to find a viable solution to prevent the accidental deaths, many of which were caused by a combination of alcohol and poor weather conditions. In most cases, it's nothing suspicious, just an overuse of alcohol, he said. Davis said discussions were held with bar owners about the problem, but no solution was reached. The nature of the incidents and the diversity of the cases complicated the search for the solution, Davis said. Marr's disappearance appears similar to that of 24-year-old Eric Munsell, who vanished in February of 2014 after he was kicked out of the market bar and lounge in the financial district. A bouncer allegedly saw an intoxicated Munsell bumping into customers. After leaving the bar, Munsell stumbled up the block. Two months later, his body was pulled from the harbor near Long Wharf. Investigators said they did not suspect foul play. On New Year's Eve 2015, after a month-long search, the body of Northeastern University student Dennis Neuroji, 21, was found in the Charles River. His death was not believed to be suspicious. In 2012, at least four people were recovered from Boston's waters, including Franco Garcia, a Boston College student who disappeared on his way home from a Brighton bar. A preliminary autopsy suggested that Garcia died from an accidental drowning. Four months later, Trishana Williams, a 20-year-old mother, was found in the water at Constitution Beach. Investigators said her death was not the result of foul play. Over two days in October that year, police discovered the bodies of 69-year-old Pedro C. Rodriguez and missing graduate student Jonathan Daly, 23, in the Charles River. Many of these cases are clearly accidental. Others are clearly suicides, and in some, the evidence doesn't point conclusively in one direction or another, but there are no signs of trauma or other indications of foul play, said Jake Wark, spokesman for the Suffolk District Attorney's Office. A relatively minuscule number over the years have been homicides, said State Police spokesman David Procopio. If there is any evidence to suggest a crime has been committed, we act accordingly, but that is usually not the case. In a recent five-year period, more than a dozen people who had fallen or jumped into the water near the Tobin Bridge were saved thanks to passerbys who witnessed the incidents and alerted authorities, Wark said. Since 1997, the bodies of at least 10 young men have been pulled from rivers in and around the relatively small city of La Crosse, a college town along the Mississippi River in Wisconsin, according to news reports. In numerous other communities, including other Midwest cities like Chicago, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee, there have been clusters of cases of young men turning up dead in the water. In New Jersey, 
The bodies of three young men have been pulled from the Hudson River within the past two years alone, news reports say. In England, 61 bodies, mostly of young men, were recovered from the canals of Greater Manchester between 2008 and 2014, according to media outlets there. In Boston, as in other places, police have said the vast majority of the deaths were accidents or suicides. Often, drugs or alcohol were involved, according to authorities. In some instances, weather conditions were also bad. The seemingly high number of cases, coupled with their apparent similarities, has prompted curiosity over the years, and even speculation that the deaths may somehow be connected and the work of serial killer or killers. But law enforcement officials working the cases, including the FBI, which weighed in on the Midwest cases, have stressed that they have found no connection between them. Police in some cities have noted that the number of people rescued after falling or jumping into area waterways was significantly higher than the number of such cases that resulted in death. But the non-fatal cases are typically not well documented. In some places, officials have searched for solutions, including meeting with bar owners or exploring the idea of building barriers around waterways. But so far, no practical ways to prevent such cases have been found. In most cases, it's nothing suspicious. It's just an overuse of alcohol, former Boston Police Commissioner Edward F. Davis told The Globe. The loss of any human life to accidental death is a tragedy. The grief suffered by their families is immeasurable and unending. There have been theories that some of these people may have been the victims of serial killers, going so far as to speculate that in some circumstances, a smiley face was found spray-painted on city walls in the areas of some of the tragic events. It makes for good tabloid, but graffiti-style smiley faces are not a rarity. Neither are college suicides and deaths caused by overuse of alcohol, a percentage of which occur by drowning. The following are suicide statistics released by Emory University. Each year... 34,598 people die by suicide. An average of 94 completed suicides every day. More people die by suicide than by homicide. Those two numbers compared, 34,598 by suicide, homicide 18,361 in the United States. Suicide is the 11th leading cause of death across all ages. And 54% of completed suicides are done by firearm. There are more than 1,000 suicides on college campuses every year. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 25 to 34 and the third leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 24. Groups that are particularly at risk for ideation and attempt are male, white, and under the age of 21. And even more shocking, one in every 10 college students has made a plan for suicide. Some other facts. Whites have the highest rate of suicide, 84%. Native Americans have the second highest rate of suicide, 6%, followed by African Americans with the third highest rate. African American women have the lowest rate of suicide across all racial ethnic groups. Whites are 2.4 times more likely to commit suicide than African Americans. Males are 80% of suicides, females 20%. More males die by suicide than females, 4.2 times more males than females, but more females attempt suicide than males. Depression is a common mental health disorder, with the 18.8 million Americans suffering from depression every year. In addition to being common, depression is a risk factor for suicide. Two-thirds of people that die by suicide are depressed at the time of their death. Among those that have major depression, the risk of death by suicide is 20 times greater 
than those who are not depressed. Treatment for depression is very effective. However, less than 25% of people with depression receive adequate care. Unwillingness to seek help is another risk factor for suicide. The general risk factors for suicide are depression, hopelessness, anxiety, isolation or lack of social support, alcohol and or substance abuse, loss, previous suicide attempts, family history of suicide, history of mental disorders, unwillingness to seek help, and risk factors specific to college students, new environment, loss of social network, loss of the safety net found at home, pressure academically or socially, isolation and alienation, lack of coping skills, difficulty adjusting to new demands of college life, decreased academic performance and subsequent feelings of failure, experimentation with drugs and alcohol. For more information, check out the following links. ulifeline.org, that's the letter U, L-I-F-E-L-I-N-E dot org. Suicidology.org, S-U-I-C-I-D-O-L-O-G-Y dot org. And SPRC.org. We aren't suggesting that any of the missing men of Boston or other cities were suicide cases. That determination is left up to the police and the families who are involved. What we are suggesting is that having a conversation with your college-bound friend or family member about their readiness to enter a very different environment and how they will be coping with pressure and problems can be a good thing. With that having been discussed, I'm going to take a 180-degree turn and discuss the possibility of foul play. A small percentage, or none, of these deaths by the waterfront could have been hastened by a swift blow from a weapon that leaves no marks the police would find later, like a leather sapper, which, when applied the right way to the side or back of the head, can knock out a 250-pound man in a second, sending them over into the water. Here's one account found on a Reddit thread in the category of unresolved mysteries discussing the missing men of Boston. Reddit.com, spelled R-E-D-D-I-T, dot com, is an extremely popular website where people go to research on all type of topics. The beginning of the thread. Let me preface this a bit by saying I'm a very good swimmer. I set two pool records when I was on the swim team in high school. I worked as a lifeguard, worked on a marine patrol unit as a rescue swimmer diver. I'm trained in rescue recovery, swift water rescue, cold water rescue, ice diving, etc. I don't even remember how many other training courses and certifications I've been through. And there was a time where start of my workout was a two-mile swim every morning. Anyway, one night I found myself in a situation where I had had a couple of beers and was walking home down the beach to the place where I was staying at the time. It was summer. It was beautiful out. So I kicked off my sandals and waded out into the lake to where it was just deep enough to dive under and cool off. But I miscalculated, and when I dove under, bam, I went head first right into the bottom of the lake. Thankfully, I didn't knock myself out or hit hard enough to get paralyzed. Just hard enough to sober me right up and leave a decent bruise to commemorate the experience. The only reason I didn't end up as a case on this one of the lists is sheer luck. No one who knows me would ever have been able to believe that with all my training and experience, I somehow ended up drowned in about three feet of calm-as-glass water. But yeah, that's how easy an accident can happen, even to someone who damn well knows better. And the threads to this post continue. Good post. That earlier post where the friend said he was drunk but not hammered struck me. For all we know, they were drunk too. So who are they to judge his level? Also, like you said, it may not have taken much for him to become disoriented or to make bad decisions. 
this post to the thread by Monkey Tuesday. You don't even have to be terribly disoriented. Just a little bit off at the exact wrong time is all it takes. I was just using my own experience to offer an example about how easy accidental drownings can happen. I wasn't making a comment on any particular case referenced here. I don't see how any of them could be drawn to the water when these all happened in the fall winter, though. Strangely, none of them happened when it was warm out. I don't really think there's anything suspicious going on here. Boston is centered around a few bodies of water, the harbor, the Charles River, and lots of open reservoirs, and has a huge population of college students. This is a typical friend-of-a-friend story, but a guy a few years older than me that lots of my friends knew in college in Boston got drunk, fell into a reservoir, and drowned. No foul play, nothing suspicious. It's tragic, and it's sad, but it happens. Response. Yeah, Boston probably has one of the greatest confluences of college students and bodies of water in the entire country. Not surprising that the two groups would come into contact. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys famously drowned while swimming while intoxicated, despite being an avid surfer. Another poster replies, So I will give you a bit of a story that may make you think more about these happenings. I grew up in Boston and have lived here basically my entire life. One night I was out drinking with my friends near Long Wharf. We'd hit up a few bars and getting pretty drunk. At about 1 a.m., I decided to head out and smoke a J with a buddy of mine. I also wanted to smoke a cigarette, and this headed out a bit earlier to do this, while my buddy went to the bathroom or something. It was cold, and I didn't have a jacket, just long sleeve shirt. So I headed down the wharf and started smoking a cigarette. It was snowing out, and there was no one else out, and it was pretty lousy and dreary out. I was just sort of stumbling around and having a smoke. My buddy was taking longer than I thought, so I lit up the J and kept waiting for him. As I was about halfway done, I noticed an older guy sort of staring at me and looking all sorts of sketchy. I don't remember why, but he just seemed very out of place, and he just made me feel off. But he was fairly far away, and I was having my own good time. I stopped paying attention to him and got closer to the water and kept smoking. A few minutes later, I heard my buddy yell something, and he walked up to me a few seconds after that. Apparently, my buddy went to the wrong side of the wharf and had to take a weird route to get to me. He said he was walking towards me and saw this creepy guy slowly and what he described as creeping towards my turned back. He also said he had his jacket open and it looked like he had something in there. When my buddy got closer and saw what was going on, he yelled and the guy turned and saw him and took off. I grew up in a shit neighborhood, as did my buddy, and we both have dealt with a lot of shady characters in our day, and we both got real bad vibes from this guy. To this day, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I honestly think that he was going to do something weird if my buddy hadn't shown up. Just to clarify, the guy had basically snuck around behind me. He started off to my left and ended up behind me and a little to my right, so he definitely was sneaking around and being shady. I am also a big guy, and there's no way he would have tried something without a weapon. I was still in college, and I played football as a defensive end, so I was pretty big and invisibly good shape to anyone who saw me. My buddy said he got the feeling the guy was going to attack me based on the way he was moving towards me and his body language. Sorry for the rambling, but this article struck a chord with me and just gave me goosebumps all over again. Another poster responds with a question at this point. Do you think he was going to push you into the water? I don't know, honestly. Looking back, I for sure had a very weird feeling when I saw him behind me. There was a reason he was sneaking up behind me, and it wasn't good. Also, I don't think he was just going to attack me because, as I said, I was way bigger than him, and it would have been stupid for him to do that. So, yeah, basically it was either push me in the water or hit on me. I don't think he was going to hit on me either. Response. 
or he was armed and planning on mugging you. That's very possible, although I've been mugged several times, and it was never by a decently dressed white man near the Boston waterfront. None of those adjectives can be used when describing my previous muggings. If you can describe the man, you mentioned he was decently dressed. Is that slacks and a button-up? I didn't see his shirt, as he had a jacket on. But yes, slacks, dress shoes, and a nicer type jacket. He had very short hair, almost like it was a buzz cut, and a very light beard, was a bit on the skinny side, and was probably around 5'10". My buddy said he had a bit of a strange walk, like he was slightly bow-legged or something. Interesting. Figured it could be useful in the event someone can dig up potential sightings in the Boston area. Any idea on the age range? 30s, 40s? I get this is getting pretty specific, just trying to build a profile of sorts. Also, if you can recall, what was the time frame of this? I get this might be too personal, so don't worry if you can't or don't want to give away for info. He appeared to be in his 40s. Yeah, it was about 1 a.m. Do you remember if the date time was around any of those other cases? Could it be you were a missed mark or coincident? And then another person enters the thread. Creepy man. But in other cases, no evidence of a crime was done to the victims. They simply are found drowned in water or next to water. Evil lurks and is a creature of opportunity. A similar string of deaths has been occurring in the Minnesota-Wisconsin area. It's almost certainly drunken men falling into water and drowning. But some people claim similar smiley graffiti has been found at many death sites. There's a new billboard in South Boston with just a smiley face on it. I don't believe this is the work of a serial killer, nor do I believe the smiley face theory, but a neat coincidence indeed. Response. If it was a serial killer, that billboard would be pretty easy to trace back to whoever paid for it. That would just be asking to be caught. Second response. My ex-wife worked for a billboard company. They don't keep the greatest records and don't require much beyond money to put one up, so it wouldn't necessarily be that cut and dry. Third response. I think he means graffiti. Fourth response. Minnesotan chiming in here, and I definitely think it's guys getting drunk and falling in. Similar graffiti can be found in many places, so that doesn't convince me. It's one of the most basic and easiest to draw things for an amateur tagger. I've read conflicted reports on this, including that one reporter who researched this and insisted there was a story here only to be fired. I believe she claimed a cover-up by law enforcement was underway to avoid a panic. However, the refutations I read to her work pretty much summed it all up as when open bodies of water exist, people drown, but especially men who drink more and are more reckless generally. I know that here in Chicago, many people, especially male college students who have been drinking, end up in the Chicago River or Lake Michigan. At least once a year or so, I can remember a story of it happening. Where there is water, people drown. Alcohol is involved in 70% of water-related deaths among adolescents and adults, according to the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control. They compile statistics on unintentional drowning. Almost 80% of drowning victims are male. It's significant that 50% of drowning victims treated in the ER require hospitalization or transfer for further care, compared to 6% for all other unintentional injuries. And from the fact sheet, it sounds like much of that care is for traumatic brain injuries. They also mention that many adults do not know how to swim. The American Red Cross found that while 80% of American adults claim they know how to swim, only 56% say they could exhibit water competency. Those basic skills aren't even ones that would help you save your life if you were caught in a current, by the way. The skills are step or jump into the water over your head, return to the surface, and float or tread water for one minute. Turn around in full circle and find an exit. Swim 25 yards to the exit and exit from the water. They also found that 46% of Americans have had an experience where they were afraid they might drown. 
That's huge. If you're going to be around water, even casually, take swimming lessons. This is another post. Any given missing person case where the person ends up dead is a mystery that's all on its own worth exploring. But I think that's what's happening here is what's kind of like that whole backwards devil message in the rock song thing that happened a while back. I could play you a song backwards and it would just sound like a bunch of random noise. But if I were to tell you that it's a backwards message that says, worship Lucifer and refuse to eat your vegetables and then play it again. Now your brain has a specific pattern to look for. And usually you will find those words in the noise. They'll be tortured, badly mispronounced, and with emphasis on all the wrong syllables, but you'll still be able to kind of sort of see how, yeah, it does maybe sound like somebody's saying those words. Humans have a wonderful ability to pick patterns out of a random noise. It's called pareidolia, and although it's usually used to reference visual or audio perceptions, it applies equally well to things like lists of trivia about people who have died under unknown circumstances. Here are a few of the stories of the missing men of Boston. You can decide for yourself how and if any of these tragedies could have been prevented. We can only hope that the awareness that this is happening all too often might cause you to want to stick closer to a friend who has just left the bar alone or who has been acting depressed. Zachary Marr grew up in Harvard, Massachusetts. On February 13, 2016, he was celebrating his 22nd birthday with his cousins at the Bellingham Tavern in Boston where, at 1.30 a.m., he went outside without his jacket to smoke a cigarette. At 1.40, he sent a Snapchat to his cousin Amanda that said, They won't let me back in. Let's leave. And she agreed to come out, and did, with others. But when they came out, Zach was gone. According to closed caption TV and bouncer statements, Zach never asked to come back inside. He was caught on CCTV at 1.44, walking past Boston Public Market, headed in the direction of TD Garden and Zakem Bridge. Police later found footage of Zachary entering, that word in quotes, the water under the Zachem. That footage has not been released. Search teams immediately began searching that area, but found nothing, probably due to extremely low water visibility. On March 15th at 5.45 p.m., a passerby spotted a body in the water by the Museum of Science in Boston, also, ironically, by the Leverett Circle State Police Barracks. It was Zachary. Why he left the bar and walked approximately one mile to the Charles River will never be known. John DeVirio was a very well-respected teacher at Boston University and chairman of the Department of Musicology. He was considered one of the world's leading experts on German Romanticism and Robert Schumann, who he wrote several books about. He seemed to all who knew him to be a happy man, and he was lovingly caring for his elderly parents, indicating, in his case, that suicide was unlikely. DeVario was last seen on CCTV, leaving the BU campus on March 16, 2003, at around 8.30 p.m., wearing a red jacket. He had left his wallet and briefcase behind in the classroom and was carrying a white bag, which was never found. His body was discovered in the Charles River on April 4, 2003, near the Cambridge Boathouse. Police did not suspect foul play, although his death has never been explained. Those closest to him refused to believe it was a suicide. Dustin Dusty Willis, originally from Hatteras, North Carolina, was a petty officer in the Navy, stationed in Norfolk, as a crewman aboard the SS Donald Cook. He was a musician, married but separated with a five-year-old son. On the night of March 16, 2007, the Donald Cook was docked in Boston for a St. Patrick's Day celebration. Blizzard conditions prevailed that evening as Willis and his shipmates partied at the Black Rose Pub near Quincy Market. 
On their way out at 11 p.m., they left the bar and soon lost sight of Willis in the storm. His friend stated that he was sober at the time. He had spoken with his girlfriend several times that evening, and she later confirmed that he was not drunk. When she called his phone a final time that evening, a person that was not Dustin answered, telling her that they had just found his phone. Dustin's phone was later found at 1 a.m. on the ground near Long Wharf, but there was no sign of Dustin. On March 21st, Dustin's body was found in 22 feet of water off Long Wharf, steps away from where his phone was found. Police conjectured that he had become disoriented in the blizzard and fallen into the harbor. William Hurley, also from North Carolina and also a sailor, was stationed in Florida and disappeared during a stop in Boston on October 8, 2009. He had met his girlfriend two years previous in Boston and moved up to Quincy, Massachusetts to live with her. On the evening of October 8th, he had attended a Bruins game with his friend Brendan Benty at the TD Garden. But after the first period and a couple of beers, he claimed he was tired from work and was going to have his girlfriend pick him up. He stepped outside and called her, and she asked where he was. She heard him ask a passerby, who answered, 99 Nashua Street, and he then warned his girlfriend that his phone was about to die. She was close and told him she would be there in a moment, at which point his phone did die, and when she turned the corner to where he should have been, he was gone. She then drove around looking for him and asking people if they'd seen him, but he had vanished. The search soon began, but few leads were found, other than his cell phone, which was found smashed. On October 14th, Williams's body was found at 2.30 a.m. in the Charles River near Nashua Street, 25 feet from shore. He had no injuries, and his wallet and keys were still on him, ruling out the possibility of a mugging. Franco Garcia grew up in West Newton, Massachusetts, and was attending a Boston College night school studying chemistry while working at a CVS pharmacy in Waltham. On February 21, 2012, he was drinking with friends at Marianne's Bar in Cleveland Circle, where he made plans to stay overnight with his friend Catherine. During the evening, the 21-year-old Garcia spent time with a number of friends in the bar. By 12.18, he texted Catherine with a reminder to not leave without him, but soon after it was noticed that he was no longer in the bar and that he had left his jacket and keys inside the bar. It was likely and probably correctly assumed that he had gone outside to take a leak. At 12.18, Franco was caught on CCTV passing by an ATM and headed toward Chestnut Hill Reservoir and the area in which his car was parked. He was not staggering. Later, his friends described him as drunk, but not smashed. His phone last pinged about an hour later in the same area, but his car was left untouched. A huge search for Franco began, with police focusing their attention on the reservoir, but nothing was found. At 8 a.m. on April 11th, Franco's body was spotted in the weeds about 18 feet from the water in the reservoir. His wallet was still with him, and he showed no injuries. Police described his death as being consistent with an accidental fall in the water. David Mark grew up in New York and had a master's in geography from the University of Albany. He had type 1 diabetes and was insulin dependent. He also had Asperger's. He had left home in Albany on March 2, 2011, on a trip to visit with his sister in the Chestnut Hill area of Boston, but he never showed up at her house. He had stopped at the Boston Beer Works near Fenway and had a few drinks. The employees there later said he was in good spirits. When he didn't show up at his sister's house, she and his parents were alarmed, and because of the fact that he was missing and insulin dependent, a search was begun almost immediately. His car was found several days later in Chestnut Hill at 10K Middlesex Road, but there was no sign of him. His phone was last pinged at around 640 in Boston, near the Charleston Navy Yard. On March 8th, a Boston fishing company found his body in the Chelsea River, 
downstream from the Andrew McArdle Bridge, 15 feet from shore. Police said there were no signs of trauma. His cause of death was not made public, but police did say there was no sign of foul play. Jonathan Daly had grown up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and played violin and piano. He studied architectural technology at Appalachian State University and later moved to Boston with friend and roommate Miles Smith. He was 23 and attending a grad program at Boston Architect College, but was taking a semester off for financial reasons. On the night of October 2, 2012, he and Miles had been hanging out enjoying pizza until Miles finally left to go to bed around 9 p.m. The next morning, Jonathan was gone. He had left everything behind but his phone. Although attempts were made to call him, he never answered. On October 9th at around 7.30 a.m., a rowing instructor near Boston University, about a mile from Jonathan's apartment, made a startling discovery in the Charles River. Jonathan's body was found tied with chains to a cinder block at the bottom of the river. Police later implied that he had committed suicide. Eric Munsell was working as an aviation engineer for GE, having recently graduated from Boston University with a degree in aerospace engineering. On February 8, 2014, he had been celebrating his 24th birthday at the Market Lounge, but was escorted to the door by a bouncer for causing a disturbance on his way to the men's room. Although it was only 18 degrees outside, the bouncer claimed that Eric had said he did not have a jacket as he left. A half hour later, his phone was pinged, headed toward the harbor, not toward his apartment in the opposite direction. He was caught on CCTV near the Marriott Long Wharf. On April 23rd at 12.30 p.m., Eric's body was found in the water at the end of Long Wharf. Police did not find his death suspicious. Why he walked to the wharf and not his home has never been explained. So what can we take from all this? First, to understand that in all likelihood there is nothing to be gained by promoting the theory that these deaths were caused by a deranged serial killer or killers. Yes, the streets at night can be dangerous. There are all kinds of people out there, and they prey on the weak and stranded in the same manner that wolves prey on animals that cannot defend themselves. The lesson? Stay with friends. Don't wander off alone. Listen to your survival instinct. Second, if you're close to persons between the ages of 16 and 25, and they're showing any signs of depression, do your best to talk to them and find out what's troubling them. In colleges, thousands of young adults find themselves in a different geographical locale, far from their families, and trying hard to fit in with new people and groups. Drinking is commonplace. Drugs are commonplace. Mixing both can be deadly. If you're a parent or a friend, talk about it. Tell them what can happen to them when they're apart from the group. Tell them about the missing men of Boston and Chicago, and Philadelphia, and many other cities. That's the least we can do. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch our three shows at 1001storiespodcast.com. Our shows are 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories, and The Storytellers. And we guarantee you'll find stories that you will enjoy, mysteries, adventure, classics, and stories that give you the story behind the story. That website again, 1001storiespodcast.com. We're listened to now in over 100 countries and found at all the good podcatcher sites like Stitcher.com, Podbay.fm, the new Google Play Podcast, and for you Apple users, iTunes Podcasts. And in all these cases, just search our show name, then subscribe. It's free, and you'll get a reminder every time we launch a new show. We're supported by our listeners at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
com forward slash 1001heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, where we ask you to go and pledge just a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, to help us keep the lights on and pay the expenses of doing our shows. Very few people actually take the time to say thank you that way, thinking that the show should be free, and I understand. But although we enjoy doing our shows, it's not a free hobby, and your help is greatly appreciated. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001heroes. Be a true hero and help us out. You can also join us at Twitter. The address is at 1001podcast, and there you'll get all our shows as well. And Facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes is where many of our fans like to go to make comments about our shows. Stop by and share and like our page and you'll have our undying gratitude. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.